Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are you doing today? Marvellous. Well, uh, as you have heard, we are starting a brand new series of talks today entitled Encounters with Jesus. And it's very, very, very loosely based on a couple of brilliant books by an author called Tim Keller, which are really accessible if you are maybe exploring the whole Christianity, faith, Jesus thing for the first time. And the idea behind the series is over the next couple of months, we're going to be working through the Gospel of John, looking at a whole load of people who met Jesus. And let's see what happened. And more than that, as we look at these people, we're going to look at what was going on deep in their hearts that's maybe universal to all of us, the kind of longings, needs, and questions that we all experience, like our search for meaning and purpose, our hopes for happiness and satisfaction, our longing for forgiveness and acceptance, and so on and so forth. And if these are universal to all of us, we're going to see how the Christian faith, and Jesus in particular, might address some of those needs and longings and questions. And today is very much an introductory talk that tees up the whole series. And the first person we're going to be looking at that encountered Jesus was a guy by the name of Nathaniel. We can read his story in John chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn there. And if not, don't worry, the words are coming up on the screen behind me, and I'm going to read from verse 43 through to the end of the chapter. This is what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what on earth is that all about? Well, chronologically, the first thing that happens that we find out later, because Jesus reveals it, is Nathaniel is sitting under the fig tree. Mentioned a couple of times, why is that significant? Well, it's very likely that this was a cultural phrase that had extra meaning at the time that's kind of lost to us today. Perhaps a modern day example would be if I said Dave Stroud here has gone down the nag's head you would all safely presume that Dave's gone down the local pub to sort out a pastoral issue or something like that, wouldn't you? Well, the same here. Any other culture going down the next head would cause a few confused expressions and a few scratched heads. 2,000 years ago, the phrase sitting under the fig tree may well have represented uh, contemplating deep things of life, wondering what life is all about. Some commentaries speculate maybe he was reading through the Old Testament scriptures and thinking, what on earth are these all about and how on earth do they apply to my life. And it's these kind of deep questions about life that we'll be looking at through the course of this series that in many ways are universal to all of us. In fact, uh, if you read Terry Eagleton's book, The Meaning of Life, he would say there are very few regional variations in this regard the world over. To some extent, we are all sitting under the fig tree trying to figure out what life is all about. Some of you may have read a book called Stumbling on Happiness, written by a psychologist called Daniel Gilbert. He starts the book with what he calls the sentence. Coming up on the screen, the human being is the only animal in the world that dot, dot, dot. 
And he argues that every professor on earth needs to be able to finish that sentence. The answer to what defines our humanity. How does he finish it? The human being is the only creature on earth that thinks about the future. He goes on to argue that people think about the future, contemplate what life is all about in ways that no other creature can or does. In fact, on average, apparently, we spend 12% of every single day thinking about the future, wondering what's to come. And sometimes this can weigh very heavily upon us. I've shared this before. Just over 10 years ago, I was working as a news and sports journalist with the BBC. And I was asked, would I lay down that career and start working for the church, start working for Christchurch? And I agonized over the decision. I could not figure out what to do. I thought, if I stay working for the BBC, I'll be over here in 50 years' time. If I start working for the church, I'll be over here in 50 years' time. And it literally felt like the weight of destiny was on my shoulders. What should I do? Now, as you can safely presume, after a long process, I ended up laying down my BBC career and started to work for the church. But now, as I look back on my life, and one of the most significant decisions I have ever made ever, here is one of my $64 billion questions. Did I get that decision right? Well, I was hoping for a yes at this point in the talk, to be honest. I'll, I'll take an amen, anything. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me thinking, this is really awkward. No. Um, you know, we all have these kind of questions about life. Did I take the right job? Am I living in the right city? Did I marry the right person? Am I studying the right course at university? We are all figuring out what life is all about. We are all sitting under the fig tree. Now, of course, Christianity's answers to these deep questions is that the answer to all of them is not found in a better-paying job, a promotion at work, traveling the world to find meaning. But these deep questions in all of us are met in relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. But to be honest, I often find that a little bit trite and twee. Jesus is the answer. What does that really mean? How does an encounter with Jesus change anybody's life? Is there any part that I have to play in the process? And what distinguishes those for whom Jesus does change their life from those those? who Jesus doesn't seem to change their life. That's what I want to look at today. What do we learn from Nathaniel's story? Well, I think Nathaniel gets one thing right and two things wrong, and we can learn from each of these points. What he gets right is what Jesus commends him for. First thing Jesus says, Ah, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What's going on there? Well, there's actually a play on words in the Greek here. Most of you, I'm sure, know this, that the history of Israel has its origins in the life of a guy called Abraham and his family, his descendants. And one of his children was called Jacob. His name meant deceiver or grabber, kind of summed up his character in many ways. Very manipulative, shrewd guy. And partway through Jacob's life, he has this profound encounter with God, and his name gets changed to Israel, meaning he wrestles with God. In due course, he has his 12 sons, including Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat and all that jazz. And in due course, the nation of Israel is established. And here is what Jesus says to Nathanael, Ah, behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob. In other words, oh, there's no manipulation or deceit in you. You are refreshingly open and honest. What you see is what you get with Nathanael. And Jesus likes that about him. He even commends him for it. This is where he succeeds and so many of us fail. I was listening to a talk recently by a guy called Joseph Grenny, who's an author and speaker in the States, and he was talking about the masks that we all wear, how we can't be honest about what's going on inside. 
And during his talk, he showed a short video that I'm actually going to show you now. It was put together by his young son, Sam. It's entitled The Remarkable Age That Children Start to Lie. It's a bit cheesy. It's not particularly well produced, but I want to draw a point from it. So let's play the video now. Now, most psychologists who look at that video find it absolutely fascinating. You see, we often think of children as being really honest, almost to the point of bluntness. In fact, that little girl who looked like she wanted to vomit she was actually Sam Grenier's next-door neighbour and was described as the bluntest little girl you could ever wish to meet. But she is lying about the brownies. Why would she do that? Here's what Joseph Grenier goes on to say. I found this quote very provocative. At what a remarkably young age you and I come to this conclusion. We start to believe that you frequently have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. That one belief causes mischief for the rest of our lives. That's the controlling assumption that dictates how we show up in interpersonal situations from that moment forward. So many of us miss out on the power and intimacy of relationship both with God and with others because we can't be honest about the bad brownies. And of course it's more complicated than that because there aren't just bad brownies out there. There are bad brownies in here too. And in all honesty, I don't want you knowing about the bad brownies in my life, of my issues with greed or my fears and insecurities. And so I end up failing when Nathaniel succeeded, because I can't end up telling the truth. My kids do this the whole time. And for those of you who don't know me, I've got three children. There's a picture of them coming up on the screen behind me. There they are. And uh, I discovered one of their secret sins recently, which is that if they are eating food, if they don't like what they are eating, if I am out the room, even for a second, they will hide food in other parts of the house. <laughs> I stumbled upon this sin on a crazy Saturday a short while ago when there was just chaos everywhere, toys all over the floor. The living room floor was inexplicably sticky for some reason, and I didn't want to know why. It was just a mess, chaos everywhere. I'm like, I want a bit of peace. So I put some sport on the TV. I'm snuggling on the sofa, and as I do so, my fingers touch something in the corner of the sofa. I'm like, what is that? So I pulled back the cushion, and I pulled out, I kid you not, a large piece of over two-month-old mouldy ham. It, it was... Oh, it was dripping, it was it absolutely stank, it was horrible, and I was mad. So I lined these three up against the wall like some kind of firing squad, and I was like, right, daddy's found some mouldy ham, who put this in the sofa? Well, I started with the one-year-old, I knew it wasn't her, because she's in the high chair the whole time, but I wanted to crank up the tension. So <laughs> she just looks at me and just bows her head and shakes her head, like this. So I move on to the middle one, Mia, right. Daddy's really cross, I want to know the truth. Did you put ham in the sofa? She looks at me and goes, no, but I think mummy might have done it, she says. <laughs> well, if you've met my wife, no, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. Now, at this point, I'm looking at number three, and I can see guilt oozing out of his paws. He is bright red, he's refusing to look at me, and so I crank up the tension a notch further. I held the ham above his head and I said, right, Jesus is watching right now, and he knows the truth. He will know if you are lying. Did you put ham in the sofa? He bows his head and just goes, I don't know. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was a bit evil. Don't judge me, don't judge me. Now, the point is this. He did know. He just didn't want to tell me about it. That is you, that is me. That is all of us. Metaphorically speaking, we have all put ham in the sofa. 
We all bake bad brownies. And one of the common themes that will come up again and again throughout this series is when Jesus meets people, he knows all about the ham in the sofa. He knows all about the bad brownies and he loves us anyway. That's the fruit of his encounter with Nathaniel. I mean, to be honest, whatever was happening under the fig tree, the best commentary is I think it's probably just speculation, to be honest. But the fruit is Nathaniel's like, oh, wow, you know me and you still want relationship with me. And one of the determining factors as to whether or not Jesus ends up changing anybody's life is this. Can they be honest about the ham in the sofa? Can they tell the truth about the bad brownies? You know, one of the most common moments of dishonesty that I think happens in any church happens around about 12.35 p.m. every Sunday. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Really? We all doing fine today? Now, this is why groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, based on faith, principles christian principles are so powerful because it starts with people saying oh this is what i'm struggling with right now and the other side of that knowing you are loved and accepted here and there is power to change nathaniel is an israelite in whom there is no jacob he comes to jesus saying look this is me warts and all jesus says i'll have you and he will have you too what's going on in there right now do you really want to change Do you want an encounter with Jesus to transform your life? You've got to be honest about the bad brownies. You know, one practical step that you could take alongside this series, sign up for the steps course. Starts next Sunday after the morning service, week on Wednesday in East London. I was chatting to a follower of Jesus just this week who went on the last course. Followed Jesus for 20 years. She said, I did it last term. It changed my life. How does it start week one? Here's the stuff I need to deal with. Here's the bad brownies in my life. For her, it was paralyzing fear. And she's like, now I'm free. It's changed her life. Why not do that? Confession, repentance, this stuff is powerful. If an encounter with Jesus is to change anybody's life, we've got to be honest about the ham in the sofa. We've got to be honest about the bad brownies. How are we doing in that regard? But then Nathaniel makes a couple of mistakes. And we can learn from them too. The first one is this. He's in danger of missing out on a meeting with the most influential person in all history because he dismisses Jesus too quickly. So Philip, his mate, comes to him and says, we think we found the Messiah, the guy who's going to change all of history, Jesus from Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathaniel's like, Nazareth, really? Anyone good come from there? Now, I'm sure you know this. Nazareth is in the north of Israel. There's a picture coming up on top of the map as to what it looks like now. It's even smaller 2,000 years ago, parochial, provincial. And Nathaniel cannot conceive of anyone significant, let alone a Messiah figure, coming from somewhere like there. Why might that be the case? Let me try and illustrate it this way. It will not have escaped your attention that the world is a pretty broken and volatile place right now. And some of you may have come across the work of a guy called James Davison Hunter. One of his books is called To Change the World. And one of his theses is that when a society is flourishing, there are lots of different spheres that independently flourish. Business, arts, media, education, faith and religion, I suppose, philanthropy, and so on and so forth. But when a society starts to fragment, when it starts to crumble, everything increasingly revolves around the political sphere. Why? Because that is the only sphere that has access to what I might call coercive power. What's that? Let me illustrate. When I was young, my parents, like all good parents, put rules in place. And sometimes I'd want to know, why do I have to obey that rule? They would give various explanations. But if I was particularly stubborn and kept on asking, but why, but why, but why? They would end up playing what I called the parent card, the conversation stopper, the discussion ender. Why? Because I say so. I hated the parent card. I thought it was unjust. 
I thought it was immoral, and I vowed to myself and to God that when I grew up, if I was ever to have children, I would never be so cheap as to play the parent card and say, because I say so. Well, now I've grown up. (laughs) Now I have children of my own, and I want to confess to you freely that I regularly play the parent card. In fact, I quite like the power of saying, because I say so. In that, no scrub that, I love the power of daddy knows best and you will do what I say because I say so. In fact, I'll go even further. Your lives would all be better lives if you did as I say so. That there is coercive power. That's why we have a pastoral team at church. If you ever work with me, why my children will need counselling for a long time to come. Now, in the political sphere, you have access to that kind of power. You can lock people up. You can set rules and regulations in place, and on one level, there is nothing wrong with that. But when everyone in a whole society is thinking that's the answer to society's problems, when Hollywood speeches are dripping with political rhetoric, imagine that. That's a sign that a society is crumbling, because everyone thinks, if I had power, that would make the world a better place. This is what James Davison Hunter says. The quote is coming up on the screen behind me. Power now does the work that culture used to. This is seen in the tendency towards the politicisation of nearly everything. Politicisation means the final arbiter within most of social life is the coercive power of the state. Our times amply demonstrate that it's far easier to force one's will upon others through legal and political means than it is to persuade them or negotiate compromise with them. What adds pathos to this situation is the presence of resentment defined by a combination of anger, envy, hate, rage and revenge. Remind you of our time at all? Now, whatever you think of society today, this is most certainly what was happening 2,000 years ago. Nathaniel's very identity as an Israelite indeed is under threat from the might and coercive power of Roman rule. And therefore, what he is longing for is a great warrior hero to come along and overthrow the might of Rome with an even greater show of coercive power. And let's be honest, nobody but nobody from Nazareth is ever going to do that. It's too small to raise an army. No one from there is famous enough to rally a nation. They're just rural peasants. They're not warrior heroes. And Nathaniel is in danger of missing the point of the revolutionary kingdom of Jesus Christ. That he is going to end up changing all of history through a kingdom that is not based on coercive power, but through the very opposite, laying his life down on humility and on love. Let me try and describe his kingdom this way. Some of you may have read a book, watched a movie called Touching the Void. It's a story of a mountaineer called Joe Simpson, who ends up having an accident in the Ciula Grande mountain range, plunges into a crevasse, safety line cut, leg broke. The story goes into great detail of his attempt to climb out of the crevasse, and he just can't do it. And he ends up making a decision that goes against all survival instinct. He decides, I'm going to have to lower myself into this crevasse, all the while thinking, am I lowering myself to my death? Because no one will find me down in the depths and darkness down there. Or might there be a shaft of light that leads to safety and salvation? Spoiler alert, he survives. That's how he writes the book, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Now that there is a picture of the kingdom of Jesus. You see, all around us, there are messages that if you want to make something of your life, climb the ladder of success. Get more money, more wealth, more prosperity. The kingdom of Jesus is precisely the opposite of that. Down into the darkness basic premise of his teaching, if you want to save your life, lose it. Give away your possessions. Serve those who are in need. If you find someone who doesn't like you, don't try and use power to win them. Just love them back. 
And if you read the Keller books I mentioned at the start of this talk, he would say that all of history got changed because of this. Things like caring for the poor, basic human rights, equality for women, none of them were ever talked about before Jesus Christ. All of those things and much more have their origins in the legacy of Jesus. He just changed everything. And the danger was for Nathaniel, as it is for us, we can either dismiss the whole of the Christian faith or parts of it because it seems a bit Nazarethy. Let me give you a couple of examples. Firstly, sometimes I hear people say things like this, Christianity can't be true because it's based on this guy Jesus coming back from the dead. doesn't happen. It's a fairy story and they just dismiss it without a further thought. Well, I was once one of those people. Like, it's just utterly ridiculous. And then I began to realise that, hang on, they knew 2,000 years ago that dead people tended to stay dead. What made Jesus buck the trend? Why did these uneducated fishermen and tax collectors go to the grave convinced they had risen from the dead? And I began to read, and I began to study, and I began to ask questions, and I began to read some more. And that is one of the reasons I am where I am today. And if you are sceptical about faith here today, I want to encourage you, like Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Don't just dismiss it because you think it's utterly unreal. No, give Jesus the time he is due. Read, study, because maybe otherwise you could miss out on an encounter with the most influential person who ever lived. Look into it. And I actually would encourage you to start with the resurrection of Jesus. I think the evidence for it is utterly compelling. And I will give you on us a free book if you want to read that further, if you are sceptical about faith right now. But I also think to those of us who have faith, we can miss out on some of the dynamism and power of the kingdom of Jesus because it seems a bit Nazarethy in part. Let me give you one example, the area of giving. Jesus taught about this more than anything else. Now, I want to be honest with you, I don't really like giving, but I love it because I find power there. I don't like it because when I give stuff away, I have less stuff for myself. But the other side of those emotions, I find genuine life and power. Just one little story from this year. About a month ago, Tim Frisbee, who leads our South Service, stood about where I'm standing right now, and he profiled a charity called Compassion, which, amongst other things, is involved in child sponsorship. And he interviewed somebody whose life had been changed by the program. Someone sponsored them as a child. They got education, healthcare, food, and so on. Their life was totally different. And I sat around about there, utterly inspired. I'm so glad we're partnering with this charity. But I was also thinking, but we can't afford to sponsor a child. Now, I give away enough to church and to charity. When Jesus taught about generous giving, he basically meant the amount that I'm giving away right now. This is a wonderful charity, but we can't do any more. Times of austerity, budgets are really tight. And as I'm thinking this through, I just look to my left and I catch my wife's eye, and she's hanging on their every word. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> Joy thinks we have enough money to sponsor a child. This is going to be an awkward conversation to have in church. Well, the interview finished and we all applauded loud and long. Two-minute break comes and before a word is out of my mouth, Joy says to me, we have to sponsor a child and we have to do it today. And I was like, why do I even bother talking to you? <laughs> well, we had a discussion and less than an hour later, I was fitting in a direct debit form <laughs> with the joy of the Lord in my heart. <laughs> and as I was doing it, I want you to know, I felt like I am going lower into the crevasse. We're going to have to cut back on stuff to do this. This isn't just a, a one-off. This is a month-by-month-by-month by month by month thing. Can we really afford it? Like, what are we doing? I'm like, I know giving's right, but I don't feel it right now. And I couldn't shake that for a short while afterwards. And then, and then, and then. A few weeks later, the pack arrived. 
And I began to read the story of the little girl whose life we're going to change. And I'm reading the story on my iPad of challenges that I can't even begin to imagine. It's like everything in here just melted away. And like of everything that I have ever done with my life, of all the stuff on my CV, and of everything I will ever do with my life, this here is one of the greatest. It's the power of the kingdom of Jesus. Have you discovered it? You know, I want you to know that the reason that we teach on giving from time to time in church is not, is not because Jesus needs the money. You know, you'll remember last autumn we set out our vision for 2020. We are really excited by where we're headed and we get the privilege of pledging towards that. And you guys were amazingly generous, but we didn't hit the target that we hoped. You guys need to know, no big deal. No big deal. Jesus is not up in heaven thinking, oh no, they didn't hit the target. My plans for humanity are doomed. What's going to happen? No, he'll build his kingdom. The reason why we teach on giving, the reason why Jesus taught it so much is when you begin to lose your life, there is life and power the other side of it. Have you discovered it? Same with serving. When you lose time and energy. Community, when you stop spending time for yourself and you give yourself to other people, there is life and power the other side, but you might feel like you are losing some of your life. You know, sometimes I hear people say to me things like this, oh, I'm going to go to this church because they've got really deep teaching there. As if somehow extra insights into the Bible that they've not seen before will lead to a transformed life. In my experience, that is very rarely the case. Now, I want to be clear, looking into the Bible, there is deep, rich, life-changing truth there. However, the Pharisees in the New Testament were great examples of people who knew lots of insights, but it did not lead to lives well lived. In my experience, depth of teaching is more a characteristic of the soil than the seed. You see, the vast majority of Jesus' teachings were extraordinarily simple. Love your neighbor. Forgive your enemy. Give generously. Get involved in community. Serve those who are in need. And the depth comes when I take simple truth and put it deep into my heart and live it out, and then the fruit comes. Have you discovered it? I was chatting to a guy recently. Quite a brilliant young man. He's not part of this church, but just thoroughly and utterly gifted. Been following Jesus for many years. But he's having a few struggles right now. And we began to meet and talk. And I just asked him a few basic questions like, how are the basics of faith going? Are you reading the Bible and praying? Are you giving to church? Are you serving? Are you involved in a community? Not that on one level it matters either way. But if you're not giving, what does that say about your heart? If you're not serving, what does that say about how you feel about your church family? Like, just ask the basic questions. And as I asked the basics of faith, it was like he rolled his eyes. Nazareth, 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 Nazareth. There they go again. And he's trying to find meaning through throwing himself into his career. Good luck to him. But actually, the real power is when I begin to embrace some of the naff-seeming things of the Christian faith. There is power and life there. Some of you may have heard the story, Aesop's famous fable where the sun and the wind have a fight. Who's the daddy? Who's the strongest? And they spot a guy with a big overcoat, and they agree, okay, whoever gets this guy to take off his coat, he's the strongest. And the wind goes first, and he blows, and he blows, and he blows, and the guy just does up his coat even tighter. That is a picture of the limits of coercive power. It does not change the world. It never has, and it never will. If you seek meaning in life through power and accomplishments and money and success, you will not find it there. It does not change the world. And then the son says, now it's my turn. 
and he just starts to shine. And you can guess what happens next. Off comes the coat and the jumper and the shirt as well. That is the power of the kingdom of Jesus. Have you discovered it? When you begin to lay your life down and just serve and just give and just love, the world gets changed. Happened 2,000 years ago and it's still happening today. If you want an encounter with Jesus to change your life, number one, masks off. Tell the truth about the ham in the sofa. Be honest about the bad brownies. And number two, lose your life. Don't try and find it. You lose your life. There is power there. How are you doing in that regard? And then there's one final mistake that I think Nathaniel makes. And we can learn from that too. And it is this. He basically is in danger of embracing Jesus too quickly and for the wrong reasons. So after this tiny encounter, he's like, whoa, Jesus, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus basically mildly rebukes him. He's like, really? You're throwing yourself in just like that? Now, just to be clear, Jesus does admit he's going to do some significant stuff. You may have thought it got a bit sci-fi at the end of John chapter 1, where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Whoa, Star Trek, what's going on there? Well, again, very famous cultural reference at the time. It's all about Jacob, who at one point in his life had a very famous dream of heaven opening and a ladder connecting heaven to earth and angels on the ladder. If you've heard the phrase Jacob's ladder, that's where it comes from. You can find it in Genesis. And it was just a profound picture of the divine connecting with creation, of God connecting with people. Oh, everybody longed for that day. And Jesus is basically saying, you're going to see that in me. God is going to connect with people in me, but it's not going to be in the way that you think. You see, you are wanting a king over Israel. Someone who's going to do away with those Romans and their nasty taxes. Oh, you're going to see something greater than that. I mean, it's basically the equivalent of me saying, oh, I love being married to Joy. I just love marriage so much. I mean, you should see her salary. Oh, sorts out all our bills. Brilliant. I mean, it doesn't, but this is a metaphor, of course. Oh, and the way she cleans the house. Oh, it's amazing. Well, ham in the sofa. No, it doesn't happen either. But, you know, you've got to get the point. If I said I love my wife because she pays the bills and cleans the house, you'd be like, wrong motives, Andy. Selfish motives. And therefore, the relationship is probably doomed to failure. It's exactly the same with relationship with Jesus. You know, so many people approach faith like, oh, my life is in trouble. I'm going to come to Jesus because he'll answer my problems right now. He'll take away those metaphorical Romans from my life and their taxes and their laws and just give me a nice, a nice life. Once my life is nice again, I don't need him anymore. That's not what faith is about. You are called to something more than an easy life. You are created to live for something greater than yourself. I was listening to a talk recently by a guy called Simon Sinek brilliant communicator and he was commenting on the prevalence of mental health issues depression social media addiction I mean if you look at the stats which I have in preparing for this talk it's just extraordinary over the last 25 years he said one of the reasons is there is a generation millennials and post-millennials that have been sold a lie that you can have all your dreams come true and you can have them tomorrow it's just not true you know I would say that if all your dreams could come true tomorrow and quite frankly, your dreams are not big enough. And if a national lottery win would answer all your problems, then I would humbly suggest that perhaps you're not living for the best thing in life. You are made for more than that. And actually, in many ways, the whole title of this series, I don't think is the most helpful, Encounters with Jesus, because it kind of implies that in a moment, a prayer at the end of church on Sunday, life can be utterly transformed in my experience. That's not the way it works. Actually, as with all relationships, it just happens step by step by step by step. 
And actually, the very best this talk and this series can do is help you take the next few steps in your own journey with faith. Maybe it'll shift your trajectory. It won't feel significant in the moment, but in time, it could change your life. And not only that, through you, the world can get changed as well. You know, I don't notice my kids grow from day to day. Brody, Mir, and Emily look very much the same today as they did yesterday. But tomorrow, grandma and granddad are coming to visit, and they've not seen them for months. They'll be like, whoa, how much you've grown. Faith works exactly the same way. You take a step in your walk with God, it might not seem that significant. I'm going to start giving. I'm going to start serving. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to read the Bible again. I'm going to get involved in community. It might feel like it costs you, but you live that out. The world will be changed. One final story before I'm done. Shared this years ago. One of my favorite ever stories. Happened in 1983. And it was about a, a man, 61 years old at the time, called Cliff Young. He was in Australia, and he signed up for what is called an ultra-marathon. If you know what that is, a marathon's 26 miles. An ultra-marathon is 573.7 miles. Takes about a week to complete. That's a bit what it's like, Melbourne to Sydney. Extraordinary race. And Cliff Young, 61 years old, he turns up on the day of the race looking a little bit like this. He's wearing a cap. He's wearing boots and galoshes because he was worried it might rain. The guy behind the desk literally said to him, old man, what are you doing here? I'm here to run the race, mate. He said, that's my Australian accent. <laughs> He's like, wow, you ever run a race before? Nah. Ever done a marathon? Nah. <laughs> and you're starting with an ultra marathon of 573.7 miles? Yeah. <laughs> what makes you think you can run? Cliff Young, 61 years old, says, well, I'm a farmer. Don't have a tractor, don't have a horse. I'm often running around my field, sometimes at night, herding my animals. I think I can run. <laughs> okay, signs him up. So he's there on the start line looking like that, and all these young dudes in their Adidas and Reebok are warming up on the start line, you know, things like that. The gun goes off, off they run. From the very beginning, Cliff Young is right at the back. People are mocking him from the sidelines. Don't die, old man. But Cliff Young had a secret that nobody else knew. You see, he hadn't got a coach to tell him that if you want to win a race like this, you basically run for 18 hours, sleep for six, run for 18 hours, sleep for six. So after 18 hours, everybody else went to sleep. Cliff Young just kept on running. <laughs> they all got up six hours later, ran for 18 hours, went to sleep. Cliff Young just kept on running. Cliff Young, 61 years old, ran that race nonstop without sleep for five and a half days. He not only won the 573.7 mile ultramarathon, but he broke the world record by over 12 hours. $10,000 prize money, he gave it all away. You know, the reason I love that story is because the greatest of all stories are won by ordinary people who never give up, who do not stop to snooze, who just never quit. That's the guys we love to quote here. Men and women who've changed history. Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Gandalf the Grey. You know the ones we love? <laughs> they lived for a cause greater than themselves and they just never gave in. Jesus isn't calling you to a quick fix. An encounter, oh, life's good now. Romans are gone. I can get on with my life. There is something far greater than that that you are called to. And I want to encourage you as we go through this series. Number one, masks off. Be honest about the bad brownies. What's really going on in there? Confession, repentance, sign up for the steps course. Number two, 
Those who lose their lives find it. Go lower into the crevasse. Don't try and climb the ladder of success. And then thirdly, never give up. This is a long-term deal. Sometimes following Jesus makes life harder, not easier. But if you keep on going, oh, the prize at the end. Oh, the places will go. Oh, the stories will tell. That's what we are called to. Why don't we all stand to our feet? Maybe the band want to come up. Before we sing a closing song, I just want to very simply invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to come. And I want to ask for each and every one of us that God would reveal right now the next step that we are to take. Because if you'd say, I don't really have faith right now, or if you've been following Jesus for 50 years or more, there is always more for you. Maybe it's breaking through fear. Maybe it's signing up for steps. Maybe it's going for promotion. Inviting a friend on Alpha. Maybe it's confrontation in a relationship. Maybe it's exploring Jesus. What's the next step for you? Let me just pray very simply. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to come right now. We know that you're here. Help us to become even more aware of your presence in this room right now. And I want to ask for every single person in this room that you would speak to us about the next step. That we would never seek you as a quick fix or an answer to our problems, but we would enjoy the wonder of relationship with the creator of the universe. That through you and through exploring you through this series, God would connect with people. And we'd know your power and life in a new way. And right now, I want to ask, show us the next step. Lead us on from here. Help us never to plateau or grow stale. Now, I just want to leave 30 seconds of stillness for you to listen. What is the Father saying? What is coming to mind? What is next for you? So, Father, we worship you. And we want to ask that the fruits of descending deeper into the crevasse would be that we each find light and freedom and salvation that is greater than we ever expected as we lose ourselves for the sake of your kingdom. As we worship now, we ask for more of your presence, that not only our lives would be changed, but that through us, this city, this nation, and the world, wherever you send us, would be different because the church is here. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.